Hello and welcome to a Thanksgiving week close reads. I am David Kern and I am joined as always by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how is it going this Thanksgiving week? <laughs> it's, going, it's going great. Terrifically. It's going terrifically. So I, I want to tell our listeners that a little while ago, Tim's mom hijacked the microphone and that was awesome. She's great. And I, I think she said she listens to this show. You're great. <laughs> she in, she, she in expectation of her reply. Thank you. <laughs> she, she I'm not going to hold it against her that she birthed you or anything. She, she <laughs> was awesome. <laughs> wow. Angelina is bringing the big guns out. She is. <laughs> I feel like because I'm the lone mother in this group, like I can get away with that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, probably. Um, <laughs> also the lone daughter. Oh, that's right. So lone Niece? Wolf. Huh? Um, wow, how poor can we take aunt? this, David? Okay, yeah. Well, are you, I'm are you with long hair. What's that? In, do you have nephews or nieces? I do. Yeah. The lone aunt. Tim, do you have you have nephews and nieces too, right? No, I don't. I have I have none. None of my siblings have reproduced. Well then I am the lone uncle. You're the little wow. Look at the self-restraint I just made about jokes about Macintosh is not reproducing. <laughs> What would the joke have been? Oh, I don't know. It would have been amazing. Just trust me. Like everybody be laughing so hard right now. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to change instead, the subject. Now. Instead, I'm going to go for the meta joke. Like everyone should just laugh about the fact that they would have laughed. We're going to be super postmodern. This is my postmodern joke. <laughs> should I tell my bad timing joke? <laughs> Do we have to listen to Pro- that? Again? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. So um, I told a joke earlier that was terrible. Um, and it, we did get to make fun of my dad's sense of humor. Reader's digest. Yeah. Absolutely straight up at a reader's digest. We did get to make fun of my dad's sense of humor, though. So that, <laughs> that did come out of it. Well, we are here, speaking of, sense of senses of humor, to talk about Twelfth Night, uh, Shakespeare's play. <laughs> the tragedy, Twelfth Night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We will be uh, talking about it throughout the course of December. The last episode on Twelfth Night will be December 29th, I believe, when we do the Q&A episode. So um, the first episode... This will go up on November 24th, Friday, November 24th on Act 1. So we'll do an act a week until the Q&A episode. Um, there is, we will not be able to talk about everything that can be talked about in, in an act of a Shakespeare play in an hour or whatever it is. This is always obviously the problem with, with this show. It's just, just only so much time. Um, there are also a lot of different ways you can approach Shakespeare. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes. There's also differences between how you approach Shakespeare um, in a classroom compared to how you're going to approach it on a show like this, where you're just kind of talking about books you love. So those are going to be some differences that I think are probably going to get brought up. Angeline and Tim each have their own preferences and approaches and interests um, in in Shakespeare. So we'll probably go ahead and ad- identify some differences and some common ground. And, and this particular series is going to be, um, you know, the kind of match where loser leaves town. So it's <laughs> <laughs> <that's> a high. <laughs> And also, I have a cold in my chest, so I'm going to be coughing a lot, particularly when one of the other people speaks. So just bear with me on that. So I apologize in in advance. Angelina, if I cough when you're talking, it's not because what I think you have to say is terrible. It's just that I can no longer hold it. Oh, I know how subversive you are, David. Every time I get going, you're going to be like, (coughs) (laughs) I'm going to take that as my cue to... Angelina, there's turmoil, there's turmoil in, in my chest and it has to get out somehow. And so sometimes the cough is going to be how it has to happen. I can't control But if this the was a Shakespeare play, it would be thematic turmoil and it would be very intentional. Well, clearly, it, I am not Shakespeare. Um, 
So let's let's start. Okay. I'm my- so glad, by the way. I'm so glad that we're going to talk about, um, you know, sort of the the limits of the show, if you will. And limits is not the right word. What, what am I trying to say? Like the, the, the purpose, of the context of the show, right? Because, um, you know, each of us are teachers. Each of us are readers. Um, or a few other things as well. Um, Friends. But yes, well, <laughs> that remains to be seen. <laughs> At the, at, the, at the outside of the show, we're friends. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, like, so, you know, originally when, when we talked about doing, doing a podcast, you know, I had to make some decisions in my own mind as we all did about like, what would this show be like? And, you know, and so one of the things that I've enjoyed is that the show has been this sort of casual um, conversation among friends about books that we love or find interesting. And it's very, very different than I would approach any of these books as a teacher. I'm like super hyper aware of how different I talk about books on this show as opposed to, to the way that I might teach them. So I'm, I'm glad we're going to have this conversation. Yeah. And I think that probably like Tim maybe approaches teaching books, maybe a, maybe drifts a little more towards the <laughs> casualness of of our conversations. But, you know, I, that's one of the things I like is that each of us, especially each of you two who are very experienced teachers, you're much more experienced than I am, have ways that you've been teaching for a long time and and ways of interacting with students and interacting with the material that are different. And so one of the things I'm interested in with Shakespeare in particular is, especially in terms of approaches to Shakespeare, um, what is the common ground between the two of you? And, And then, yeah, what is the differences? And like, we don't need to argue about you know, is there one that's inherently better? That's not really And really, I don't think that there is one that's inherently better. Like one of the things that I tell people when they come to me, you know, in, in angst about how do I teach, you know, whatever work of literature, you know, almost always my starting point is, well, you, you have to be you, right? You have to teach to your strengths. I mean, teaching literature is different than teaching something else because we're dealing with a work of art, right? And part of what we're trying to express to our students is a sense of wonder and love about the art and how to experience art. And that's obviously a personal thing. Um, but but also it's incarnated, right? It's rooted in a person. And, and so I don't think that there is one right way to teach. I think that every teacher must play to their particular strengths. I think Tim and I have very different strengths and i'm not ready to say one is better than the other i mean obviously mine is better but i'm not ready to say one is better How did than i know the other. that was coming i'm <laughs> not ready to say one is better than the other i mean you know i would do a terrible job teaching to tim's strengths he would do a terrible job teaching my strengths i mean you know this is this is sort of the intuitive nature of teaching right we all have to be who we are and yeah. and 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 that's best. You know, like, so for example, people will, I bet Tim gets this question. I bet you get this question too. People will, will ask me like, what are the books that I need to teach? Right. My answer is always teach the books you love. Right. Like that's seriously more important than some, some list, right. That doesn't have any relationship to you. Like don't force yourself to teach books you have no interest in teach what you love. That is students will get excited about that. They will learn how to love something by watching you love it. So, There's so, certain- you know, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I thought you were go done. Ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. I am definitely done. Go ahead. It's, it's the it, there was a lag there in my in the audio for me, so there was like a moment of silence, and then I realized you it was just the computer had stopped, not you. Because <laughs> my mouth works faster than computers. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is there is definitely a difference between saying should you read a certain book and should a student learn a certain book, and should you be the one to teach that book? Absolutely. Like yeah. my dad um, loves. Uh, Homer, he like he, he would teach Homer and read it till you know till the he will teach it till the day he dies. I probably should teach it, but I'm not capable of being a great teacher of Homer right now. 
because partly because I haven't I don't have the affection for it that he does. So I couldn't be quite as good a teacher, I don't think, as he could. That's kind of neither here nor there, but those are different questions. And I think that that's a valuable point that you're making there. So, okay, here's, here's my question as we kick off the conversation. Angelina, when was the last time you read Twelfth Night? Oh, it's you, been several years. But you read I Actually, when we first, the funny thing is when we first started talking about this, I twice, twice said to you guys, oh, I've never read this. I'm so excited. And then I picked up the book and I was like, I have totally read this. <laughs> Sam, what about you? It's probably a couple of years ago. Okay. But you read it, what did you say you read it a couple times? At least? I think two, maybe three. Okay. Yeah. And I've only read it one time. I read it out loud to my kids a long time ago. Okay. And for me, I, it's been quite a while. I mean, I read it in school. I saw them, like my family watched the movie fairly regularly when I was a kid, at least three or four times, you know, when I was in high school and then uh, I read it for school. So it's been, but it's been quite a long time, probably at least five years since I've been in touch with this play at all. Um, so I think that that's going to be, it's gonna be fun to be reacquainted with it. Let me ask you this question then. Do you have a certain, uh, version or series of versions that either of you tend to gravitate towards in terms of Shakespeare plays in general? Tim, do you? uh, Versions. What do you mean, David? Um, like, okay. So for example, I have... Um, I'm a first folio gal. <laughs> I don't uh, really mean that. I don't really mean the, the like the original I, folio. I knew you didn't mean that. <laughs> so I have the Pelican came out with, um, well, uh, the Folgers some, edition. Well, they have some new ones, the Pelican Shakespeare, um, which have you know the reason I ask is because the yeah there's different formatting and different things like that, but there's different versions that have different introductions, different notes that focus on different things. So like yeah. I have the Modern Library recently came out with a series of them that they did with the Royal Shakespeare Company, but some of their notes are a little bit like they're clearly focusing on like adult themes in Shakespeare. Like they really are concerned with adult themes. But then if you look at the, um, even some to the point where I think sometimes they're over reading things that aren't there. Um, and then you look at the Pelican Shakespeare that Penguin does. Um, and that's got like a whole different set of interests. And so I like having, like I kind of read both because they kind of balance each other out. So I was just wondering if there's a particular one that either of you like the most or that like, if you're looking for a new version of Coriolanus say yeah. that you're going to gravitate towards that edition. I do have an answer for that, but I want Tim to go first. I love the Folgers editions. I just think they're lovely. I, I have two complete Shakespeare books at my home, and I have about maybe a half dozen Folgers series. I just love the Folgers series for two reasons. The notations on word clarifications and definitions are at the bottom of the page, not at the end of the book. I just It drives me crazy to have to turn to the back to the end of the book in a Shakespeare plugs, there's so many words that I don't know. And I also tend to, they really get really great commentary slash essays. The one they did on Hamlet is one of my absolute favorite. Essays like introductory essays. Yeah. Yeah. An, an, an interpretive essay. Okay. So Angelina, what about you? Okay. So I, I, I just go to my go-to book, the Riverside Shakespeare, which is the one I had in, in college. Fantastic introductory essays, fully annotated. That's just, it's just, is my that go-to. one large book? It's a huge book. Okay. So it's like all on tissue, the plays. Like on t- it's everything. It's every okay. sonnet. It's everything. It's got all these essays. I mean, it's the scholarly edition, but I also recently discovered that, you know, my mentor, as I've spoken, I think probably about on this show before, Burton Raffel, who is my professor in college. So he did a series of annotated Shakespeare editions, like paperbacks, with Harold Bloom. 
And so uh, I did order one of those just to see what it was like. So I ordered the Taming of the Shrew and I loved it. So it's fully annotated with the annotations at the bottom, like Tim was saying. And it's got an introductory essay by Burton Raphael and then a Shakespeare essay by Harold Bloom in, in the back. And I, I have been really impressed with the ones of those I have seen. We should do a close reads on Harold Bloom sometime. We could have so much fun with Harold Bloom. Like just start reading scholarly essays and close reading them? Yeah, just like do... For the Patreon people? Yeah, yes. I have mixed feelings about him. We could get totally controversial. Me too. I have... Oh, I'm so relieved to hear you say that. Like, I'm like, oh, he's really great. Oh, no. No, like, seriously, I just, I have a book by him on Shakespeare that I'm like, did you read the same plays as me? (laughs) (laughs) So my favorite version, like, I realized recently that that it has a lot to do with the layout. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always you, David, where the words are on the page. And I'm all like disembodied ideas and... (laughs) Yeah, well, because like the new in 2016, the Penguin ones, they have this new series, and I'm totally obsessed with the book covers. They look like they're supposed to look almost like a ticket, like a, or like a playbill or whatever you call that. So yeah. they look they look really beautiful, and then the layout of them is both like classical and easily readable with notes at the bottom of the pages. And then the Royal Shakespeare ones got one where it's like oh, it's got a lot more space between the lines, which makes me feel like it's going faster. Like those kind of things mess with my head a lot, so I when I read Shakespeare because of the way it's broken up, it's just different than what I read a lot of the time visually. Like I have to get my head around it. Cause you know, when I read a novel or whatever, even an epic poem, the blocks of text are so different than the lines. In a, mm-hmm. in a and so I, it, for whatever reason, like that sense, like the senses, a sense of sight, like I have to really get into that rhythm. So what it looks like on the page, uh, matters to me it's it's completely superficial and really dumb but i can't be I the only one out there I don't yeah, think I, i'm not ready to say it's dumb i mean i think people's brains work differently i'm, I'm a very visual learner so the way the words look and the placement on the page is actually very important to me and spacing and the paper and just like the whole yeah, deal yeah yeah yeah, yeah. if it, the, the print's too small and i feel claustrophobic while i'm reading it so i don't i don't i I think that there really is something to that. I, I don't. I don't think you should dismiss that so easily. Hmm. Oh, thanks, guys. I feel better about myself now. <laughs> okay. oh, by the way, so the editions I was talking about—they're put out by Yale Yale University Press. If someone's looking for those. Okay. 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 Well, the, I mean, there's lots of different versions. So if there's a version that you and you're, you're listening out there and you love a version, we're not like saying read ours. We're just—it's just—it's just a point of conversation. Okay. Just make a point to read it in the original language. That is my <laughs> yeah, only exactly. thing. Yeah. Exactly. I'm going to be a stickler about that. <laughs> I know Tim thinks very differently than I, but I'm just a fan of the original language. <laughs> so you don't want to read the Russian translation of Hamlet? You know, as, as good as I am in Russian, I just feel like you got to be true to who Will Shakespeare is. Yeah, yeah. I like that you and Will are on first name basis. Does well, he call you? Because totally. we know he calls you Angie. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> you know, it is kind of, I think it's not outlandish to claim that Shakespeare might be his top three, at least of the world's greatest poets. And maybe he's the greatest of all time. He's going he in our language. And that is wonderful. You know, I think Dante is probably there with him. Homer is probably there with him. And he wrote in our language. And that is one of the accrued benefits, not an accrued benefit. That's one of the benefits of 
being born into this language. You get to read Shakespeare. One of no, the that's things- absolutely true. And, and he elevated the language. You know, we, uh, we forget yeah, because we're post-Shakespeare, right? We're, we're post-Shakespeare. We forget that, you know, it was a big deal for Milton to write in English. It was a big deal for Chaucer to write in English, right? This was not the scholarly language. This was not what art was done in, right? And so yeah. he elevated the language. He really made it into something. It's, you know, Shakespeare and the King James Bible, they give us English, right? Mm. And he, he elevates the language. One thing the way that I love about Shakespeare is the way he synthesizes um, the, the sound of the language and the... I don't know what the other, exactly what I was gonna, how I was going to put this, but like he, the music of English comes alive in Shakespeare in a way that it didn't quite the same pre-Shakespeare. I th- I think anyway, but he also gets to get, he also plays with the language through the metaphors and images that he uses in a way that I think no one had done before. And he like harmonizes those ideas in the, s- the same time. Like, absolutely. I mean, you kind of have to study the history of English to kind of realize just how new English was and what happened to it and how you lost English for a while because of the Norman invasion and French becomes the dominant language. And so English is no longer written and it loses its grammar and blah, 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 you know, the whole story. And then it comes back. So uh, you know, it really is an achievement to have made English a, a beautiful language. I mean, at the time of Shakespeare, English is not formalized. Spelling is not formalized. He just made up words when there wasn't a good enough word, which is why when my students get all, you know, poetic with their language, I just say, hey, you're being Shakespeare. Welcome yeah. to it. You know, if, there, if no good word exists, make one up. <laughs> Speaking of Harold Bloom, you, you and he may disagree on that point. Um, <laughs> knowing, knowing Harold Bloom. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, I guess let's just quickly cover some some ideas about approaching to sh- approaching Shakespeare, um, particularly I guess let's just quickly cover in the classroom. So, Tim, I know this is like there's some there's going to be some common ground and some differences here. So Tim's going to approach this. He's a theater guy. He's a playwright, a director. He's acted all that kind of stuff. So he's going to approach it that way. Angelina, I suspect you're going to approach it from a little bit more of a, the literary scholar perspective. Would you say that's true? I would say that that is true. So let's... I mean, you... I have all the melodrama of an actress, so I could see why you might be unsure. <laughs> <laughs> so let's... Okay, let's, let's, let's take a hypothetical situation and let's think classroom just for a second because I think that's just a good place to start and then we'll shift gears towards the show. Is that, we, is that cool for both of you? That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So Angelina, when you're in a classroom... What are the things that you're primarily going to focus on? Okay, so I think that one of my gifts as a teacher is to take this C.S. Lewis idea that you, you have to have the right mental furniture to be able to understand a book. Like, so I'm, I'm big in wanting my students to be able to fully enter into the experience of a, of a work of art. And sometimes that means that, that I have to help you get over your modern assumptions. And so even something as basic as Shakespeare's going to use words a little differently than a modern will, right? It's going to mean something different to him. Um, but also like they're working with a different set of cultural metaphors than, than we're working. So, so I would not say that I give necessarily the historical context approach because that, that can be very reductionist, right? Where you're trying to say, oh, this is a reference to this political leader and you're like trying to one-on-one match things up kind of thing. That's not necessarily what I'm doing. Um, I'm trying to help my students be able to enter the imagination of the world that's presented, right? So when C.S. Lewis talks about you have to read Homer like an Achaean chief, right? Um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help my students be able to grasp like the Renaissance imagination, the Renaissance sensibility. 
Uh, so, so what I'm going to do as a teacher is I'm going to try to identify the Renaissance metaphors, the way that the Renaissance man thinks about the world, because Shakespeare is very much a Renaissance man, um, and, and he's doing some really interesting things with, with the established metaphors. And so I, I, try to, I try to give my students all the mental furniture. Like I think of myself, if I can say this, as the character Virgil in Dante. So Dante's walking around the inferno. I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And Virgil's like, this is what you're looking at. Mm. So that's kind of, yeah. kind of how I see myself, that I'm the guide. I'm helping them to be able to, to see what Shakespeare has has laid before them. So my particular so, skill set is going to be to try to try to open up that Renaissance imagination to them. Okay, so we're going to do that a little bit on the show. Obviously, we're going to. I'm definitely hoping that you're going to bring some of those ideas, those themes, and those metaphors, and like help us understand them and see them. But that you know, based just because of the context of the show, we're going to be somewhat limited on that. So I'm curious if you have a resource that you would recommend for people to turn to to help them understand that. Is there like a book out there? or a series of books that you would recommend, or is this just pure Angelina brain power? <laughs> um, it's neither. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I use my notes from graduate school and then just all the things that I've read over the years. So no, I don't personally know of like a resource that do you, have a, do you have a couple that you just love off the I top do, of I do, like The Elizabethan World Picture by Ian Tilliard. I, that's a fantastic book and really okay. will help you open it. Like, that's my go-to resource. That's the one that I recommend. And Ian e. Tilliard, if you don't know that name, is the scholar who interacted with C.S. Lewis. Remember, they did that series of letters about how to read literature? Mm, okay. So, so that's you, that guy. Didn't you tell us recently, in a like other than this conversation, something about a book, the author died in 1942 or something like that? Oh! Oh, yes, 1946. Oh, gosh, yes. It's literally sitting on my lap. That's, that's the day I'm having. Yes, Angelina, this is it's a- the book on your lap. Just tell us about that one. <laughs> David, that's amazing. Like, can you actually see me right now? How did I know? Just for the record, no, I cannot see Angelina right now. <laughs> so what, oh, tell okay. us about that one. Okay, this is a book called The Meaning of Shakespeare by a very respected scholar, Harold Goddard. Um, I don't think it's still in print, but there are used copies still available. Uh, and this is a book that really tries to get at Shakespeare's imagination, what Shakespeare is trying to do as a, as a poet. And uh, I love it. I, I, it's the rare book that I um, can sort of encounter someone, a scholar that I'm like, you speak in my language. I, I was like, I've actually, I, I sad admission. I put hearts in the margin of this book because I was so geekily excited about the stuff he was saying. But so he's got some general essays about how to read Shakespeare, but then he's also got like a chapter per play. So if someone is looking for a resource to help elucidate, like what are the themes, what are the motifs, what Shakespeare trying to do here, this is absolutely your go-to resource for that. And that book again is called The Meaning of Shakespeare. It can you can find it in a one volume or or a volume one and volume two set. And the mm-hmm. author is Harold Goddard. Okay. Awesome. Yes. That was in the fight. Have either of you ever looked at, you're never going to, you're not going to believe me if you haven't heard of this, Isaac Abzimov's I, Guide I was Shakespeare. wondering if somebody was good. Yeah. So do you like that? Like, I think it's great. I have not put my hands on it, but I have heard of it. So is it like just mostly like, is it historical background or is it more of an imaginative metaphor kind of thing? No, it's more historical background. Um, and Isaac Asimov, for those who don't know, he's a science fiction writer. He's the last guy you would expect to have written. But he actually wrote a series of fantastic medieval histories. Did he? Re- I heard he's just a complete. He's an interesting guy, right? Yeah, he is. Hmm. All right, Tim, let's, let's turn to you um, because I'd love to hear your, your perspective is obviously going to be a little bit more uh, theatrical, and I don't mean that in a derogatory yeah. way, like I said. So um, 
when you, I love that you felt like you needed to explain that theatrical wasn't an insult because Tim's probably like, well, how would that be an insult? <laughs> well, you know, people are just like, oh, you're so theatrical about stuff. Maybe that was just something I was told when I was growing up. Tim, no, I'm no. going to personally be disappointed if you don't say the theater. <laughs> I am not going to say the theater. <laughs> but <Wait>. you did. <laughs> no, I, I've I always, whenever people say don't be, I've always heard don't be theatrical. It's never a, a, an endorsement of affection. So, okay, you're, you're going to bring that theatrical approach to it. And so for the classroom in particular, how do you bring that into the classroom? Well, I think the end goal for me with Shakespeare is I think most of my college students probably know that they ought to respect Shakespeare, but not many of them have yet fallen in love. And my goal is as much as possible to get them to fall in love. And for me, it's it's the performative aspect of Shakespeare that kind of sets him apart. Um, and what do I mean by that? I think most of the reading that we do, when we read novels, when we read poems, it's a solitary experience. It's a quiet experience. We're by ourselves. Um, but I think that Shakespeare, part of what makes him come alive is that he wrote for performers. And so I try as much as possible to get my students to read him aloud and to think about, even if they're not an actor and they have no inclination whatsoever to act, to get them to think about just how those words sound in their mouth and to get them to think about um, Shakespeare as not just a mental exercise of reading, but a full body experience mm -hmm. um, of the actor on the stage saying these words with passion with real conviction. Mm -hmm. So what I often do is um, I will ask that my students, if at all possible, when they are reading the play before class to sit together and to read it aloud. It takes a little bit longer, you know, than watching a movie or just reading it by yourself, but I ask them to split up into parts to read it aloud and then I'll give them an option. Once they get to class, typically I'll ask them to write a, you know, like, almost my most common assignment is write a short one paragraph answer to a simple question about the reading. So was Socrates's argument to Crito in Crito a convincing argument, you know, defend your answer. Right. But with Shakespeare, I give them an alternative. I ask a question and then I give them an alternative assignment, which would be instead of answering a question, uh, memorize Mark Antony's speech over the dead body of Shakespeare and speak it aloud to the class. So, so if a student, go ahead, David. Well, no, go, you finish your thought first. If a student chooses to do that, then I will treat that recitation as the beginning of class. And I will probably start with, um, so the, the, the lines go, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding. This is Mark Antony over Shakespeare's body. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding. Julius Caesar's body, but that would be an awesome play. <laughs> What's that? You said <laughs> Mark Antony's standing over Shakespeare's body. I was like, oh, that'd I'm be sorry. an awesome play, but I think you mean Julius Caesar. <laughs> over Julius Caesar's body. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. And so I asked them, like, well, just tell me what those mean. What does thou bleeding piece of earth mean? That one's fairly easy, but it still demands a little bit of work. That's Caesar's body. Um, 
these butchers, who are the butchers? Well, then you have to think about who does he mean by the, who are the butchers? So it's probably Cassius and Brutus and the rest of the assassins. So that when, when I get them to just walk through those 12, whatever, 20 lines of Mark Antony's speech, that's a little bit of an evaluative process for me because I get to hear how quickly they're putting the language together. If they're really struggling okay. so it's, it's to a, understand partly the it's for, us, for you to assess. Partly, yeah. Partly it's yeah. that. And if they're having a hard time with the language, then I'm going to assume they're having a hard time um, digging out kind of more complex things in Shakespeare-like theme. And so, so I'll, go, I'll go slow. But if they're, if they're having an easy time with the language, then I'll go more quickly to larger themes. Can I ask a question? Because I find this really, really interesting. We, we actually have the same goal as a teacher, which is to, to make them fall in love. Um, so I have a question, but okay, so um, my sort of specialty is with students who have read something before and don't like it. Like that's my, that's my favorite setup is somebody who comes to me like, I've read this and I don't like it. Right. Um, and then so what ends up happening invariably is once I explain to them the Renaissance metaphors, the play opens up and then every single time they're telling me, oh, my gosh, now I love this play. I never understood it before, but now I get it. I love it. Shakespeare's a genius. This is brilliant. I love him even more. So that's kind of how I go. What is it that you would say? get students to that point of falling in love? Is it the language? Is it the character? Is it the just overall emotional intensity of the experience? Like, what do you think your students are connecting with? I think it's the first two things that you said. I think it's the intensity of the relationships. Um, and I think, I think also the language. And I think for some, it's the intensity of the relationships. And for some, it's the language. I think for me, it was probably the language first. I mean. And what do you mean exactly when you say the language, if I can ask that? I love how it sounds in my mouth. Ah, okay. Okay. So can I point something out here that I think is really interesting? Because you talked, I mean, I don't remember exactly how we put it a few minutes ago, but like the idea of, um, well, I'll just say this. The, the idea of loving what you're teaching. Because yeah. when Angelina presents this part of Shakespeare that she loves and it helps her students love it, I suspect that part of that is because of who it is that's presenting that to them. Mm. So like Angelina's got a gift for getting those ideas across in a way that's going to help her students love them. And you have a gift for getting your part of the things that you love about Shakespeare across. And so they love the things that you love. And I bet that if you tried to teach exactly the same things Angelina does in the exact same way, they might not love them the way they do if Angelina presented it. Yeah. And the things that you help. I agree. Yeah. So I imagine that, you know, that's where the specific contexts matter. Like um, if I tried to do, teach homework the way my dad teaches it, it would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. You know, I'd have to approach it in a different way. Um, and that's, that's where you, Angelina, you use the word intuitive about teaching. Like there's something intuitive about the way we interact with our students and the work that's so unique to each of us. And I find that so fascinating about the nature of teaching. There's obviously specific <laughs> skills that a teacher, that all teachers are good at, right? There's just, there are specific skills that you have to have in your back pocket to be a good teacher. But it's like being a carpenter, I feel like. Like there are specific, if you're going to do basic carpentry, there's certain skills. But like one carpenter might be amazing at like making the prow of a ship and the other maybe at framing a house or something. And like they might not be both, they might not both love those things. And so that love doesn't come across in the work. I don't, does that make sense? 
Yeah. It totally makes, I completely agree with that. I love that. And this is one of the reasons I get so uncomfortable with anybody that wants to come out with like standards or a list. Like this is what it means to teach 12th grade literature, right? Because yeah. I mean, I am who I am. I'm an, a person, right? I have a, a skill set. I have gifts. And then I am teaching these specific students. Right? I'm not teaching imaginary students. I'm teaching these, right? And they have something that they need from me that a different class I'm teaching is not going to have which yeah. is part of what I mean by when I say that I'm, that I'm intuitive about it. Like I just <laughs> sense what they need from me and that's where, that's where mm. we go. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Tim mentioned uh, memorization and before we jump out of the classroom setting, which I'm sure we'll come back to as these conversations happen, I'm sure we'll kind of compartmentalize our conversations a little bit, but Angelina, does memorization play any role in your classrooms when it comes to Shakespeare or do you just um, kind of, is it not something that's important to you? Wow. Uh, well, I, well, don't, I don't mean it that oh, harshly. No, okay. No, no, no. I'll just say that I, my particular teaching situation is once a week for 90 minutes. So I am, I, I have to make choices based on how much time I have. I, I actually think memorizing things from Shakespeare is very worthwhile. It's not something that I do because I teach online. I'm limited in time, but oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of people memorizing poetry and memorizing parts of Shakespeare. Um, it's not something necessarily that I have the time to do, but it's always been a part of my homeschool. Yeah. Which of course brings up the idea of context, right? Like uh, the show is a different context than a classroom and two different classroom settings are different. Tim teaching twice a week in a college setting is different than you teaching once a week online or someone yeah. else teaching yeah. for 45 minutes, four days a week or whatever in a school. Or me, if I had a, I mean, I don't, but if I had like a 14 year old student at home and we were doing one-on-one -on -one stuff mostly, or he was studying on his own, that's another different, uh, entirely different context altogether as well. So it, it is. If I had unlimited time, I'm sure that that would seriously shape the choices I make and I would make other choices. Okay. So let's, let's use that as a jumping off point then as a transition to the context of this show, because this show is not a classroom. We are not teaching. We're not co-teaching a classroom. Um, this is more of friends talking about books. We love finding common ground, finding little things to argue about. Um, finding ways that we're different and the things that, you know, all those different things that go into talking about literature with people who you're friends with and talking about books that you love. How do you, how do you see that kind of approach with Shakespeare being a little different than a classroom? And Tim, I'll go to you first because I asked Angelina the other question first. Yeah. Well, I look for, I look for a performance of the play before I look to read the play. I love to read the play. Um, and that, and but so that would I be true on the show or in a classroom. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So I asked my students, uh, I think the last Shakespeare <laughs> book that I taught was Coriolanus, which is... Uh, That's a hard play. It's, it's, I think it's the most complex, as far as just the language goes, it's probably the most complex of his plays. And we're talking about Shakespeare. The man is not a layup. This is, it's really difficult. <laughs> the BBC did a version in the 80s, and I think it's exemplary. And I asked my students to watch that play. And I asked them to all watch the same version of it because you know, if you get to different versions of it, then you're kind of discussing um, how one version portrayed Coriolanus versus you know, his relationship with his mother versus how the other play, the other version represented his relationship with his mother. And I think it's just good to start all in the same place and then you can go see different productions that have different. Um, so are they watching it before they encounter it in the, in the text? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think that I, I think 
and this is just part of my conviction about Shakespeare, he wrote for actors. He wrote his sonnets for readers, you know, aristocrats who could read. But I think he wrote for actors. And for I think Angelina. That he wrote for Angelina. He wrote the sonnets for Angelina. Yes, he did. Thank you all for acknowledging that. Um, I think he wrote for actors. And I think there is, I think the actor is a medium between me and Shakespeare. And if the actor is good, I really think it enhances my understanding of the play. Um, I mean, all three of us are probably advanced enough as readers that we can handle Shakespeare perfectly fine on our own. But even still for me, I would rather see a Royal Shakespeare Academy rendition of the play and take their interpretation um, and, and see how they, yeah, just take it under consideration. So that's why so, I like watching a, a, a performance of it to begin with. So uh, Angelina, you um, have said that you're, you know, you've said before, you're not you're like, you don't love watching Shakespeare performances, whether on stage or like, that's just not how you, you prefer to, to approach Shakespeare. So when it comes to the, just the complicated language and things like that, or even just the plot, like not knowing the plot beforehand, you, would you read a summary or something like that as you were starting? I would. So, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with Tim. Obviously Shakespeare really was a playwright. Uh, so, you know, I'm not, I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't entirely disagree with that. A lot of it has to come down with what do I think should be my first introduction to it. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, here I'll take the opposite view, view of Tim. I, I think your first introduction should be with the text, not with, with the actors, because actors are, are going to be interpreting it, right? And so I, I don't want anything to stand between me and this, and this play. Um, but, but, but anyway, like you said, yes, I absolutely, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of summaries, um, but detailed summaries, right? So I, I will read a detailed scene-by-scene scene summary just to get all like, because there's often a very large cast of characters and you also have a lot of mistaken identity disguise motifs in Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, which, that's true. Which can make it confusing about who is such, who. And so I, I, such I as like in Twelfth Night. Such as in Twelfth Night. So I like to, and gosh, and, and then the names in Twelfth Night are even similar, right? Um, yes, yeah. I mean, Olivia and Veal, I mean, that's intentional, obviously. But um, I like to just sort of get everything set in my head and then, then, and then see what Shakespeare is, is doing, like thematically and with metaphor and stuff like that. I had a question for you about that. So do you, or, or Tim, you can chime in here too. Do you guys, do you guys like the, um, some of those classic uh, retellings for kids like Mary, Charles and Mary Lambs or the E. Nesbitt children's Shakespeare? I, I do. Those are all very good. And the Charles Lamb one really is considered a, a literary work in its own right. Right. Although and he did, was a scholar. I, I keep getting running into quotes from him. Did you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by this. Did you know that the Charles and Mary Lamb one removes Malvolio, Sir Toby, and Sir Andrew altogether from the Twelfth Night? Interesting. I was actually going to say they often take the subplots out. Well, and they were worried that that was too, it was too risque for like for your impressionable minds, which maybe it is. I don't, but that's, that's just, it's an interesting, interesting. I actually yeah. love that. We're I actually love that. We're, we're talking about this because sometimes I will get questions about adaptations of, of works of literature for children and whether or not that's okay. And this is typically my answer. Um, <laughs> some books the first time you encounter it needs to be the first time you encounter it, right? Like a novel, okay? Like the first time you read Three Musketeers, it needs to be Three Musketeers. That, is, that was the intention, right? But that was not the intention of, say, like Homer, right? This is not anybody's first introduction to Achilles or Odysseus. Like the original audience knew who these people were. And so I'm 
a huge proponent of, no, let your kids read the adaptation. Let them, let that world be super familiar to them because that's what it would have been to the, like Homer wasn't pulling a plot twist, Achilles dies, right? Like everybody knew this. <laughs> and, so, and so you should know it too. It doesn't even other, end with, like not, the book doesn't even end with the end of the no, war. Exactly, exactly. So, right, when scholar said the Iliad, the book that does not begin at the beginning or end at the end. But, <laughs> um, but I also feel that way about Shakespeare because Shakespeare was also working with an established many, many times, established plot lines, um, working with characters that people already knew about, doing interesting things. But So Shakespeare and Homer is kind of the two places where I feel like it's really okay to read children's versions. And I'm curious what Tim thinks about this. Um, and that I don't think that anything is lost by coming to a Shakespeare play and you already kind of know what's going on. I, I think everything's to begin. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with so, that. So Tim, is, that, is, your, is your goal in like watching the uh, performance first, whether stage or film, is that, is that kind of the goal to help give a context for the actual play itself? Uh, I don't know. Say what you mean, David. I'm not sure. Well, like, is it to help? Is it the same sort of idea as reading a summary or is it purely because Shakespeare was performed originally? So, I mean, it's the latter because he was originally performed, but it's also, it's just, it's to give the first time viewer slash reader kind of a leg up in understanding. And so it is the same purpose as reading a summary. So you both agree with that. Angelina would just quibble a little bit, that, or maybe not a little bit. She might disagree vehemently, as far as I know, that, that you shouldn't watch a movie first. So can, Angelina, I do have a quick question about that. If, you're, if, you're, if one of your kids, like your son who's in college, came to you right now and he was like, I really want to watch the, I don't know, like a newer version of, like say, just say Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet or that famous um, uh, 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 Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. And he had never read those. Well, plays I really before. thought you were going to say the Italian one, but okay, yes, the no. famous one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, so when I was in school, that movie was a huge debate point. Like the the, I took courses on Shakespearean film and all that, and that movie was a huge flashpoint because some people love what they did and some people didn't. So that was just in my head. But uh, would you would you just basically tell him I vehemently think that you should not re- watch these films until you have read it? Or would you say, you know what, go for it, and then you're asking but, but me a parenting sure you... decision. As the parent, I would say, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I mean, look, I have my theory of how the ideal, right? If we'll go to Inspector Poirot. I have the ideal of how things should be. The eggs should match, right? We'll, we'll reference the last episode, but yeah, yeah. I have I have the ideal. But then there's also the real, and I am just just to be clear. Somebody's excited and wants to watch some Shakespeare. I'm not going to be the person who's like, no, stop. Yeah, okay, Here are my okay, notes. I see. And let's talk about some metaphors. No, 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 no. Like, go where the spirit leads you. I would definitely never tell someone who wanted to see it, don't. Okay. So you're talking like, I mean, you're you're kind of talking the ideal as far as literary approaches. Like, we all yeah, know. Yeah, like, I, I, I'm, I have a lot of doubts about how such someone can really understand what Shakespeare is trying to do if they can't see the words on the page. Now, some, and and there are various reasons for that. Say again, David? Would you agree with that, that just seeing a film or a stage play would offer you an incomplete version as opposed to if you read it as well? Like, you, get, you, you don't have the entire picture unless you've also experienced it as a reader. Oh, what is complete? <laughs> that's the question is what is complete? Because I think well, that's fair. Maybe we should continue, like, think about that and continue that conversation. Over well, you know, Harold Goddard has a chapter about this in his book, the poet, 
versus the playwright and, and which one is Shakespeare. And uh, he, he's, he offers a synthesis and he says that it's both. And, and, and so he argues if you only read it, you're going to be missing out stuff that you're going to see if it's acted. And if you're only watching it acted, you're going to miss out stuff that, that you're only going to catch if you're, if you're reading it. That's the case he makes. And I'm very, very okay with that conclusion. Like I agree with him. Um, and, and he goes on to, well, he argues that Shakespeare is working on a dual level on purpose and that the, the Shakespeare you see is not Shakespeare in totality. So like he's going to be playing up the humorous things, playing up the body things, and that is for the general public. But if you really want to grasp Shakespeare, the artist, you have to read it because that is all going to be under the surface and you're not going to get it. So, so he argues for the dual Shakespeare, which I totally agree. And so I'm not too interested in public persona, body humor, Shakespeare. Like, I want to get to the good stuff, so I want to read it. And I know Tim is probably, like, you know, grabbing the smell and salts right now. But No, 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 not at all. Not at all. The point is, I think those common, the, the common ground, I guess, here is that you each prioritize something else, but that there's value in, in uh, you know, in both. Right. Yes, and I will give an example of that if I if I might of a conversation Tim might not even remember having with me because I often don't remember what I tell other people, but I do remember what they tell me, oddly enough. <laughs> Which is always why when I see myself quoted, I'm like, what idiot said that? Oh, that was me. Um, <laughs> but but I have primarily experienced Shakespeare as literature. Uh, almost exclusively. I very, very rarely watch Shakespeare versions. Um, but having a conversation with Tim about um, Hamlet a long time ago, in which he talked about the, the staging of the Globe Theater and how modern staging is a black stage and it's really sort of disembodied and, and mm. almost Gnostic, right? Mm. Uh, and that the globe itself was very incarnated and that there is in the globe setting itself, heaven, earth, and hell, which I mean, I'll, I'm sure I will talk about the, the Renaissance hierarchy and the triad and how that those threes were super important to the Renaissance man. So that made total sense to me when he said that. But then he explained how the to be or not to be soliloquy looks very, it has a different meaning if you're situated in heaven, right? with heaven above you versus the nothingness of the modern black stage. Of course, that got me super excited because I just thought, well, that's another element in which the theme is brought out. And I can see more what Shakespeare's trying to accomplish here from a literary perspective by understanding you know, the, the literal setting. So I find that kind of stuff very valuable and enriches my own, my own understanding com completely. And I really do think it's a matter of which one is our primary pleasure. I think Tim's primary pleasure is, is the performance. And my primary pleasure comes from from, from the imagination of the world. I think that's exactly right. I, th I liked Shakespeare before, but I, when I started acting, it was only 10 years ago, I had a, I had a, there was a woman who was in the play that I was in who taught Shakespeare. Her name was Sparky Roberts, and she's since become, I've mentioned her on the show before. She's a good friend of mine. Classic old school Shakespeare teacher. And she asked me to come perform a couple of scenes. And I performed a scene from measure for measure when, um, Oh, what is the brother of the nun? Uh, Isabella Claudio? Claudio is in prison and he realizes that he's going to die. And it's just the little exchange between him and Isabella. And I did it with a friend of mine, Mary, and I, it was transformative for me. I've never had more fun on a stage before and it was a five-minute scene. And I think that was the moment for me where I went from appreciating Shakespeare to I just fell in love. And it was because I performed it. I, I had to say those words and make them understood. And they came down, you know, 
they came from the tips of my toes out to the crown of my head, it was a different sort of experience. Okay, I can buy that. So can I ask a follow-up question? Mm -hmm. What was it about her instruction that made you connect with the text? Because see, I feel like my role as a teacher is I'm that old school lady right there. Like I'm helping them connect with these words and then suddenly the words come alive. She is old school in that you don't say the word if you don't know what it means. Um, Right, so see, I would argue then again, this is probably quibbling, that it wasn't the performance that made you fell in love. It was that for the first time you actually understood what you were saying. And see, for me, I don't, I don't feel like I need the performance to get there, but I can understand that someone else would. Well, I, I think I understood 98% of what I was saying, but I could fudge a little bit on those words that I wasn't quite sure about. Um, she would make sure that I knew exactly what I was saying so I, I don't think it was a meaning. I don't think that the meaning became clear to me for the first time. Okay, so help me understand what happened then. Did you embody the character? Was that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, I don't even know Okay, how to... so like, I feel like I'm hearing then, this is why everyone should act Shakespeare, but I'm still not hearing why I should sit in the audience and watch it. Do, do you understand what I'm, what I'm asking? Like, I'm trying yeah. to understand what, what happens to me as an, I hear you saying, it's important to act it. And I, I know, and I don't disagree with that. I'm for kids reciting soliloquies. Like I'm for that. I want to, I want you to explain to me why I have to sit in the audience and watch someone else. Embody. Well, you don't. Can I, can I offer something? Okay. Then? All right. Okay. Tim, I, could you mind? Do it, David. No, do so, it. Okay. So here's, here's my, one of my thoughts on that. You don't have to. You didn't have to in 1613 or whatever either. Um, I don't think that it's something, I mean, like you should, you should go to Shakespeare because it's pleasurable and because it's the kind of pleasure that is also edifying. If you don't take pleasure in it, I wouldn't tell anyone that you have to go see Shakespeare plays. Um, I I know there are people that will disagree with me on that. And I would say, I would say that there is an argument that could be made. Like if you don't enjoy at least some part of a Shakespeare performance, that that might be more on, it's either on the performers or it's on you. And that's where mm-hmm. you have to discern which of those two things it is. It could easily be that you're going to a bad performance and that's, that's, that's a very possible yeah. thing. There's bad movies, there's bad actors, there's bad plays and all that, you know, bad interpretations and performances and stuff. But part of it is <clears throat> that Shakespeare was creating these plays to be a pleasurable communal experience. And one of the values of them is experience. It's like when you go to a movie, one of the things I love about movies is that you're, you, you, can, do, you can experience this work of art in a communal fashion. So like when you read a novel, that's a very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm, when I'm viewing a performance of something, when I'm viewing a play, that is a communal aspect. So there's that. And then there's also just the fact that sometimes mm-hmm. hearing good actors perform Shakespeare. Like if I go to hear, um, if I go to see uh, Tim perform Hamlet, I would go primarily to support my friend, but also I would go because like you can go hear one actor interpret hamlet and even if i don't agree with it i can say well that's an that's at least an interesting interpretation i can think about why that is and this that becomes a puzzle and stuff like that i could all and then i could hear another i could watch a movie and see kenneth Branagh interpret it and think about it a different way and it just helps me think about the play in different yeah. in different ways it's not saying your interpretation like i don't think when an actor is saying you know he 
like when Kenneth Branagh performs the to be or not to be speech a certain way and he stages it and blocks it in a certain way. He's not saying this is the only way, but he's trying to imagine the essence of that, of that play and the essence of what Shakespeare's doing. And he's trying to present it in a way that is uh, tangible and he's trying to incarnate it. And so being a part of that experience as an audience member, I think can be edifying as a reader, but I wouldn't say that everybody has to go see Shakespeare plays to know mm-hmm. Shakespeare or like, mm-hmm. That's, but that's, that's just my perspective on it. I think some of this is, is also a personal issue, but also maybe just the way we process things. Like, so yeah, I don't I like going to the movies because I do, and I can tell you, I can articulate why I don't like, because I don't like the communal experience. Like, mm-hmm. so I like to watch movies on my tablet with the headphones. That is my preferred way. <laughs> I don't like going, I don't, and I know a lot of people yeah, like yeah. the experience of going to the I don't like, sure, so for sure. me, the way that I interact with art is extremely private and personal and the other audience members and the noises they're making and just their presence is constantly like distracting me and pulling me out of it. So part of that is just my own personal, I'm not saying that's the only way. I mean, I'm, I'm aware a lot of people, there's a whole industry, right? People like the communal aspect of watching movies. That's not just, that's just not my thing, right? I like it. I like things to be one-on-one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and part of it too, is that I'm super visual and, and things are not, and this is just, uh, just an honest confession and it's probably a flaw and I don't know the reason, but things are not real to me unless I read them. I literally put the subtitles on when I watch movies. Karis always comes in and like, really mom, you have to read your movies too? Yes, I do. I, I, do, I will say I do that about 75% of the time. Like I have to see the words. It's somehow just not real to me if all I'm doing is hearing it. I think that's part of the hang up I have with going to see a play. That and how fast it is. So it's mm. moving so quickly that the experience you have is so different than the reading experience. Like, it's not contemplative. It's mm. It, I'm not ready to say it's wrong. Like, so I went to see Measure for Measure a couple of weeks ago, professional um, group from London uh, performed in Charlotte and they were fantastic. And, and they re- it was a very fine performance, but I was also like really aware as it was happening that it was such a different experience of Shakespeare than I would be having if I read it. Several times I wanted to just pause them and read it. Let me read this line. Let me read this line. Let me follow this motif through because it was just happening so fast. And I was also really put off by when the audience would laugh at the wrong parts <laughs> because they played up the comic. They played up a lot of the comic, uh, physical comic aspects. And so it would drown out what I knew was a significant speech. And so that bothered me. But that goes to my whole like, y'all are doing this wrong. You're experiencing art wrong. I need to be by myself well, now. Like, that, like that's just my own issues centuries of literary scholarship have shown us that we can argue till we're blue in the face about approaches to literature, right? The new, the I just new want critic, to give permission to everybody who just wants to curl up with their Shakespeare in bed by themselves. You have my permission for that. I, I, you do I, not have Tim's permission. But you have mine. <laughs> Tim is going to show up at the foot of your bed and act out that play. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. I'll be knocking on the bed frame. Um, you, you have my permission to not be pushed. Uh, yeah, would you prefer an actor? My, per- my permission to not feel like you have to be forced to to experience it any given way but i hope that as you learn more about the work of art you will start to think about it from different perspectives but can i put it that way yes yeah. i think we all agree you have to love shakespeare or we will kill you <laughs> <laughs> that's right you hey, know Tim. one of the uh, one ahead, thing kind of a tangent what i so when i lived in eugene i would get i i saw you know, probably every play that was performed at a couple of theaters, the major professional theater and a really excellent community theater in the city. 
And I noticed that something happened when a play was really good, which it is hard to make a play really good. It is really, really hard. So maybe one in five plays, you'd walk out and you were like, oh, that was extraordinary. And I noticed the thing that would happen is when I would see a friend or when other friends would see each other after a really extraordinary performance, an extraordinary play, can you guys guess what, you, what they do with each other, friends do after they see each other, right after they walk out of the theater? I've seen it over and over. It's like they, they look- stare at their shoes and walk out quietly, or maybe that's probably <laughs> just maybe me. That might be you. <laughs> they, Act they, like you don't see them and hope they won't talk to you. That's probably also just me. Go ahead. <laughs> they look at each other and they, uh, they like take this simultaneous breath with each other. I've seen it happen so many times. It's like, I don't know if I'm like really rendering it in a way that I know that you guys have seen this happen. Two people will walk out. They were sitting on opposite sides of the theater. They watch the same play and they see each other. And rather than immediately bolt to each other so they can speak about it, they breathe together. They take a deep breath together. And I've I seen thought, this. You know what I'm talking about, David? Yeah, I, yeah I've seen this. Yeah, I've seen what? it more so with movies for whatever reason. I don't know. Or I've seen, you know where I've seen it? I've seen it at like um, the symphony or the opera. Oh, yeah. I think now it's that like, I can relate to. You okay. know, the idea of like there's something that you've just experienced something beautiful together and like maybe there's not really, you can't really say what it is yeah. you can't express verbally right away what yeah, it is yeah right meant, but right. You, there's like this physical expression that you share that uh, i think that's exactly awe. it that's where i i think it, i've seen it the most uh like the most tangibly and i that's part of what part of what i want for my students to be honest is that moment it's like, I want them to experience Shakespeare and I want them to have that breath together, if that makes any sense. And it is kind of pre-philosophical. It's the moment before close reads begins. It's the moment before um, we want to talk about it is we just want to have a breath together. It's almost like you want to, you know that you were synced up in the theater um, and you, you just want to kind of uh, express that to your friend. I, my friend Dan and I, I mentioned him a little bit ago, just such a wonderful actor. And <laughs> this happened on so many occasions. You know, we'd, we'd see a mediocre play and we'd, you know, walk out to the after party or whatever. And we'd go, hey, what do you think? Uh, what do you think? Uh, and we'd talk about it. And, you know, that was the end of it. But when we saw a great play and we both knew it was a great play, we'd find each other's eyes and we would have this breath together and it was we both knew it like we just saw something extraordinary and i think it is it's it's almost like it's a unity of emotion and then sometimes dan and i would talk about the play and we the things that he loved were not the things that i loved the things that i loved not the things that he loved but the totality of it was extraordinary the totality of it for us was I think very very similar. It was it was profoundly moving. Hmm. I would love to have an experience like that. I literally never have. Like I can I can like on a rational level hear what you're saying and nod my head, but on like this gut level, like it's just like you're speaking another language to me. Like I 
I have never had an experience where I deeply connect with something that I do not like that I have not tried to understand. So for me, my closest friend always points this out to me. For me, love and understanding are literally the same thing. When I hear people try to separate them and say, well, you have to love it, and then you're going to want to understand it, I feel like, okay, you just started speaking Greek. I, you don't make sense to me now because it's the same thing. I do not believe that something that is not understood can be loved. And I think that to understand something is to love it. And so for me, if I sat there and saw this play, I know that I would not be understanding what is really going on. I have to study it and understand it and then I can love it. But I know that not everyone's that way. I know that I have encountered, I have encountered, so I teach adults as well as students, right? Kids. And, and I, I, there are some adult readers who I greatly expect, respect and, and they literally approach literature the opposite way that I do. They fall in love with some work, like deeply in love with it. And then they'll take my class and they'll say, okay, now I understand why I love it. And that is like the weirdest thing for me because I just think, what did you love? <laughs> like, explain to me what you loved. That... You didn't understand it. Like, it just doesn't compute to me. But I accept, I totally accept that her experience is valid. And yeah, I yeah. love being able to teach her. I love it because I love, like, she has this moment with me of, like, okay, now I know why I love this. Yeah. It's just not something I have it's... experienced myself. I'm not saying it's not real. It's awesome that she does it. I just have not experienced that. Yeah, it's just something like ephemeral or. Um unexplainable like you, you, some there's some attraction some something cosmic that something capture you. her heart right yeah. something but that's not how it works for me personally and i can't imagine i'm the only human being like this so that's that's part of my struggle so like when i was watching measure for measure i enjoyed it but i kept wanting to be like wait i'm gonna go read it in the hall and then i'm gonna come back and y'all gonna finish right like i just it was a frustrating experience for me because i just was like y'all have to slow down so i can really think about and understand this and then i can then i can love it hmm. Do you, do you ever, do you ever, do you ever feel like sometimes you are overthinking it? And I truly do not mean that as a criticism. I'm actually asking, cause I feel sometimes like, I'm feel like I'm some sort of in between those areas where like, I feel like I should love something. And so I try to understand it and try to help myself love it. But then I feel like I end up overthinking it. And that like, then I'm just kind of stuck. Does that ever happen to you? No, people ask me that a lot. And so I've actually thought a lot about that. And, and uh, my, my, my understanding is of, some, of something is not entirely intellectual. So that's why I don't think it's a matter of me o overthinking it. Like um, when I'm aware that something is operating on multiple levels, like with Shakespeare, like, like I don't even know how to answer this without really getting into like how my own head works. But I am the kind of person who swallows things You can things punt on the question if you want to. I have to swallow things whole. I cannot take things bit by bit. And I honestly can't, I, I like have a really hard time understanding people who take, who take things bit by bit and then they end up with the whole, like I have to swallow the whole thing. And then I love the whole thing. And, and I'm not the kind of person who can like love parts of things. I mean, it's very all or nothing. Like everything in life for me is all or nothing. And I think that's also explains why I have trouble with the Shakespeare performance. Because and Thanksgiving. Yeah, well, yeah. It explains but, why. <laughs> it's true, very true. But <laughs> I think that's what's happening is that I, I should be able to say, well, I liked this about Measure for Measure. I liked the comic. I liked this. But instead, the whole time I was aware of, but I'm not getting the whole thing. If only I could get the whole thing, then I could really be excited about this. So that's just how my mind works. Definitely not a bit-by-bit <clears throat> bit girl about anything. Mm -hmm. Well, for the sake of time, I think we should probably transition towards Twelfth Night in particular, if that's all right. Speaking you guys okay with that? <laughs> Are you okay with that? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. Okay, so um, 
Twelfth Night Act One is what we're going to talk about for the last little bit of this show. Um, we're going to be able to come back and reference things that were previous to this. Um, Angelina, you fo- you like to focus on you know kind of setting the stage, setting up some architecture for people to kind of uh, mm-hmm. understand. Could you could you show us what you mean by that a little bit with with this play? Like, what are some metaphors, um, some some themes, some some pictures and things like that that you think are especially valuable for understanding Twelfth Night in particular? Like, for okay. example, I, the title maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I think that. There's one Renaissance theme that is going to be the dominant one in this entire play. So this is actually a really easy one. Some other play has might have multiple ones. This one has one dominant theme. Um, so the Renaissance imagination is obsessed with order uh, in a way that actually is very difficult for us to understand because we're very compartmentalized. The Renaissance man is not compartmentalized. And so there's all these like really intricate hierarchies of the proper order of things. Um, so from, you know, the king or the heavens or God and the angels to even my own inner landscape, right? Everything has to be properly ordered. And if any of those things are out of order, everything is out of order, right? So this is why in, in Shakespeare's tragedy, you know, if the king is assassinated, then there will be an eclipse. The horses will eat each other, right? Like all of nature will revolt because every instance of order now has been thrown into chaos, right? Nothing is compartmentalized. Um, now, Twelfth Night is a comedy, not a tragedy. So Shakespeare's playing with this obsession with order in an interesting way. So Twelfth Night is, of course, Epiphany. This is a this is a Christian holiday. However, um, it was one of these Christian holidays that was very mixed up with pagan rituals. And now the, the interesting thing was this actually still exists. <laughs> and I looked it up to be sure that it was the same thing that the Elizabethan understanding of Twelfth Night it was the same thing as my understanding. And it is the exact same thing. So Twelfth Night still exists and it exists in French Louisiana. So what people tend to think of as Mardi Gras as this one day, that's actually not correct. Mardi Gras is an entire season that begins on Twelfth Night and ends on Ash Wednesday. Okay, and this is the season that Shakespeare is talking about. So Twelfth Night is Epiphany. Epiphany is when Christ, um, so the kings come, and Christ is introduced to the Gentiles. So now you can see that there's a sense then in which Christ's introduction to the Gentiles is a little bit of an example of the world being turned upside down. The incarnation itself is an example of the world turned upside down. So Twelfth Night, which introduces the carnival season, which culminates in the day Mardi Gras, the day before Ash Wednesday, so the day before Lent starts, is an entire season in which you celebrate that the world has turned upside down. And it's very closely connected to the Saturnalian Fest of the Romans. So the idea is that um, you have all of this disorder, everything is turned upside down, and, and, it, and it, this chaos grows and grows and grows, but the chaos is like sort of good for the world. Okay, this is the pagan idea. It's good for the world. And so then on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, it flips back around. And that somehow now there's been this release in the universe, okay? So what ends up happening in the Twelfth Night celebrations and in the Mardi Gras celebrations, and again, people probably don't really know what the whole Mardi Gras tradition is, even people in Louisiana who've not studied it, but I have studied it. It's very, very deliberate. Every single thing that happens during that Mardi Gras season is an example of the earth being turned upside down. So there's tons of cross-dressing with no sexual connotation. Like This is not like a transvestite thing. It's a, it's a comic Men dress as women, women dress as men kind of thing. Um, you also have um, poor and rich people being flipped around. Um, so Mardi Gras parades each have a 
court, it's all the pageantry of a king and a queen, except it's poor people, right? So they're in these elaborate court costumes. There's a king and a queen in each parade. And what do they throw? They throw Mardi Gras beads and they throw doubloons, which is we're, we're, we're poor people, but we're going to play the role of the rich person. So we're throwing jewels into the crowd and we're throwing money into the crowd. And so everything is this topsy-turvy, the world is upside down, revelry, extreme disorder, that, and, and also lots of feasting. And then boom, on Ash Wednesday, it all goes away. Now you're in a season of fasting and repentance and the world has ordered itself. So when Shakespeare calls the play Twelfth Night, he is calling all of that into our minds that the world is turned upside down in this play. Everything is going to be disordered. Everything is going to be extravagant. All these images of excess. And then, of course, he's going to be doing something with that. So that's what we should be looking for. Lots and lots of examples of out of control, the world is upside down, topsy-turvy imagery. I, I'm intrigued by how those themes, those ideas are introduced even just with the Orsino, those oh, the op- on it, the opening Orsino speech. lines. Yeah. The opening speech hits every mm-hmm. single one of those, right? Um, so, so yeah, that, that, I was thinking as I was reading this that in some ways that opening speech operates sort of like a choir and like a history play or something almost it feels that way um it there's foreshadowing and like basically telling us what's coming maybe a less maybe less directly than say the choir in um henry v say um or maybe like the chorus in a greek play something like that david is that what you're thinking yeah i guess so. and I, I hadn't formulated the thought it just kind of occurred to me and i noted it in my margins and now i'm saying it on a show publicly probably shouldn't have um, <laughs> that's okay we're all about thinking out loud over here <laughs> But so, so yeah, it seems to be setting so much of that stuff up. So, um, Angelina, would it be okay if I asked Tim to just read those 15 <laughs> I lines? I was really plus? hoping you would. Tim, give us a little taste of the Duke. <laughs> Actually, you cannot give us a little taste. That would be completely wrong for this character. Give us an over-the-top, <laughs> full of passion, excess, and topsy-turvy emotion. Or, or so that we're not over-interpreting, just read it super mon- monotone. chant it (laughs) are you there tim oh no sorry i was muted i was muted i was responding and i (laughs) i I started reading actually and you guys weren't hearing me here we go you were so offended by what i said about (laughs) you just left the show not at all okay so the first that little speech the act one scene one line one if music be the food of love play on Give me excess of it. That's, surf- oh, help me. Surfetting, surfetting. How do you pronounce Give that, Angelina? Give me excess of it. I don't know how you pronounce it. I, I think it's surfetting. Let me start again. I'll say it's surfetting. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it. That's surfetting. The appetite may sicken and so die. That strain again, it had a dying fall. Oh, that it came over my ear like a sweet sound that breathes upon the bank of violets, stealing and giving odor. Enough. No more. Tis not so sweet now as it was before. Oh, spirit of love, how quick and fresh art thou, that, notwithstanding thy capacity, receiveth as the sea not enters there of what validity and pitch soe'er, but falls into abatement, and low price, even in a minute, so full of shapes is fancy that it alone is high fantastical. 
So hmm. as, as we move forward, what's going to, anytime we read a passage, I know what's going to happen is some audience members are going to be listening and they're going to be like, oh, I would have done that differently. Oh, yeah. completely differently. Okay, so you know that I'm never going to be doing that, Tim, just so you know, I'm just like, because, you know, I'm just reading it in my head and it doesn't even matter what you say. <laughs> so I'm Angelina, joking. can you show us then where some of those uh, previews come in? I mean, I love, I mean, very, very obviously is in line too, the word excess. Yes, um, exactly. So all of these are, are images of excess. So the metaphor here that he's using is the idea, this is the person who eats so much that they throw up and then they keep eating. So, and that is a good Mardi Gras image. <laughs> that really is, that that is the essence of Twelfth Night, right? So I'm going to make myself sick on the excess of it, but I want more. I'll just throw up and then I can eat more. So also what you have so it's love that has done this to him right so he's he's drunk on love he's drowning in sentiment and shakespeare's going to take both of those ideas drunkenness and 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 drowning and he's going to tie it together with this excess of love and emotion he's going to carry it through the whole first act so that every single character here is in some way drunk or drowning and they're just filled with all this excess and emotion except for one character and we can save it till we get that if you want to but so so what he's going to be doing here is thematically he's topsy-turvying but he's also messing with the form and we can talk about that later on another episode about what the comic form is and what we expect as an audience member because of the form what does the form demand of the poet the playwright i mean sorry the playwright (laughs) and um just but Shakespeare is messing with that as well. Like, so he is playing with um, stereotypical characters and what, you, what the expectations of a comedy are even, right? Because everything, because that's how genius he is. Everything is turned upside down. Not just the theme, the characters, the comic form, the, the whole thing. Everything is going to be turned upside down. And of course, you're going to get lots of like, there's lots of words in here that are little like previews and hints to things like later in the act, even like the word, mm-hmm. the, like violets, for example, is an obvious one or, or the idea oh. of odor, um, the sea, receive yeah, it as the sea, yes. that notwithstanding yes. thy capacity, receive it as the sea, um, how, um, the spirit of And love. that ties in together with the character of Olivia, right? Because at yeah. first she seems like she's the opposite of the Duke, right? He's all in love. She's in mourning. But the idea is she's also suffering from an excess of emotion. Her right. excess of emotion is mourning. This is, this is to an extreme, right? So much so that she's crying a sea of tears. So she's also drowning in her emotion and Oh man, it's just, okay, so now you see, this is the stuff that gets me excited about Shakespeare. Like, I'm just like, oh, this metaphor is amazing. <laughs> and of course you have the, the um, is it Fest, Feste, um, who's calling her on that? Yes, the clown, the fool. Yep. So the fool yep. who is usually the character who is the one in excess, right? Who's the over the top, you know, mad, mad cat buffoon kind of thing. He's the one character in here who's like totally in control of himself. Hmm. So always the fool in a play is the voice of wisdom and contrasted to the other characters, but he's flipped that around by making the characters all be crazy and the fool be the same. Hmm. Hey Tim, let's, let's talk a little about some of these crazy characters in particular, Sir Toby, uh, Sir (laughs) Andrew, um, and that whole like, and you know Malvolio, that whole cohort of characters who are, shall we say? Oh, did a you little... also hear that Shakespeare played Malvolio? That's what I read. Tim, is that what you heard? I I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. It would make sense. That it kind of like resembles some of the other characters that he played. Didn't he play um, Bottom in Midsummer? 
I don't know. Or did he? That makes sense because one of the essays I read compared Bottom and Malvolio as having like a similar kind of. No, no, I'm sorry, I'm confusing my essays. Never mind. Check it out. Continue. Let's okay. So let's talk about some of these characters. They they are a little bit rough around the edges, shall we say? Yeah. There's a reason why Charles and Mary Lamb pulled them out of the stories. Um, You can (laughs) you can focus on certain elements of their language and some of the metaphors they're using if you like. But there's also just a role they seem to be playing here, as Angelina's pointing out. Um, Can you what do you what do you think of those characters and how you might approach them, shall we say, if you're concerned about their their uh, the challenges they might bring (laughs) if you're reading with younger people? The the challenges meaning their um they're full of off-color jokes. Yeah. Yeah. They're basically, they're basically like Will Ferrell's cohort. Yeah, they are kind of like Will Ferrell's cohort. Ah, so I thought about um, Sir Toby Belch's line, Sir Andrew, would thou mightst never draw a sword again? I'm pretty sure that's a, um, Ouch. It's, a it's an off-color joke. And I'm like, I think my... My college students would get it. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that high school students uh, they might. I would just read past it if you're worried about it. I would just read past it and not make a notation. No, honestly, if you just don't pause, they don't get it. It goes over their heads. Well, and besides that, the beauty of Shakespeare is that that metaphor, like you, if you're looking at the off-color perspective on it, like you can focus on that but even if you just focus on the idea of like a sword and like sword fighting and defending yourself like that metaphor still works and that's the beauty of what shakespeare's ability to craft language yeah and angelina go ahead go ahead well i was gonna say i think if you know you're i think college it's time to start talking about that stuff at least by college you know like parents probably need to be talking about it well before that but i think in a public setting like a college yeah, just admit it. It's what's going on in the text and your students will get a giggle out of it. And so can I, I think just trying to bypass it almost makes it worse by the time they're in college. Right. So Angelina, it is true that there, that this is in the text, but it has a purpose in the text. In act one, scene three, Maria tells Sir Toby, you must confine yourself within the modest limits of order. And yes, I underlined that. Very good. You speak. I got, Miss, Miss Stanford, Miss Stanford, I got, I found a line. I found a line. So um, you totally found a line. Actually, that's a real good. That's like one of our happy moments in class is when they say, have a line, and then I say, "Oh, I underlined that too," and they get all excited, like I'm learning how to find what's important. Yeah. So, as Tim says, it is there. This off-color stuff is there. You can skip it to varying degrees and still get what Shakespeare is doing with these characters. But Shakespeare isn't putting that there just to appeal to our baser, you know, the baser people in the audience, those people that were standing on the ground in front of the stage, right? There was certainly that there, you know, there was the, the Will Ferrell factor in, in, the, in the audience that he was writing to. But there's also richer, deeper things going on here. And that line, I think, gets at that. And it speaks to what you're saying about this Renaissance idea of order. So what is the purpose of these characters, do you think, in this play? Oh, well... I guess we can just take them as act one for the introductory thing. So right. so most of the characters are all going to be images of excess. And so Toby is a literal drunkard, whereas people have been metaphorically drunk. And so he's creating all this tension between excess and order. But we're going to have to see what he does with it ultimately and where he's going to come out. I mean, I actually, Maria's got a lot of good lines here. 
Uh, she also, um, when she's talking to the clowns, says to him, that was a good Linton answer, which that goes yeah. back to your 12th yeah. night idea and that this is, we're moving toward Lent, which is that season of fasting and aestheticism and repentance. And so she's calling that character, the guy who's, who represents Lent, you're the, you're the Linton answer. We're going to be all these images of excess, right? And, <laughs> and one of the really interesting lines is that, the, so the clown uh, brings together what at the very end of Act One, what Shakespeare has been making parallel, right? So he's been making parallel drunkenness, drowning, and excess of emotion, which of course would lead to madness. And the clown at the end puts those three together, right? The drunk man is like the drowned man is like the madman. He puts those three things together. So Shakespeare is is is, is saying that you know to be in excess of emotion is to is a sort of madness. Um, one thing that speaks to that madness is that basically Sir Toby, for example, will just say whatever he wants. He has no regard yeah. for fact. Yes. So at the end of act one, scene three, for example, when Sir Andrew and Sir Toby are about to go off, Sir Andrew, um, says, shall we set about some revels? And Sir Toby says, what else shall we do? Um, we weren't born under Taurus. And then they're talking about like what those, like what Taurus, the, um, what it represents, the zo- the zodiac signs or whatever the zo- signs of the zodiac whatever the zodiacal award um it is, is now, now shakespeare go so, so <laughs> it's then sir andrew says taurus that's sides and heart and then sir toby says no sir it's legs and thighs let me see the caper and then the, he says something nonsensical but like that's not at all what Tor- what taurus is was representative of so he just basically doesn't care about the truth at all he Mm. says what he wants and so you have these characters who say what they want and then you've got some characters who just only say what they feel and they can't get past their emotions and like so and so that creates disorder when people just say whatever they're feeling or whatever they want yes and and malvolio is the he's being set up initially as sort of the opposite of that, right? He's like this Puritan kind of stoic and, you know, there's a right way to do things. That's how he's being introduced here. The classic English butler. No, very much so. Very much so. Um, and and then you know there's just there's a lot of interesting things going on um and and so sometimes people have given the character of Olivia a hard time because she's like I'll never look at another man I'm gonna mourn my brother forever just the memory of, and then she's like well you're kind of hot okay let's get married right so and she does that a few times in the play uh, and people have started giving her a hard time but again I think that you always have to keep in mind that framework. It is, it's a madness that comes upon her when she falls in love that quickly, right? It's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be irrational because everything that's happening is irrational. I mean, Orvino is in love with a woman that he has never spoken to, right? Uh, everybody's just crazy in love with people they don't know. And it's, and it's a madness that comes upon them, like drunkenness or like being drowned. You know, this fits with what I think is Shakespeare's kind of anthropology. I think he thinks that this is the way that human beings are. I mean, we might say that he's playing these roles to comedic effect and he's turning over the form, but this is not an uncommon theme for him. I mean, um, as you like it, this is all over as you like it, that there's a long speech. Oh, in the middle of it, um, about, how lovers ought to be imprisoned because love is a form of madness. And O plays from Romeo to Juliet to measure for measure to all's well that ends well. Love is love at first sight. It's, I, I can't think of anyone aside from Beatrice and Benedict 
falling in love slowly. Uh, that's no, that's an exaggeration. But almost all of his characters, when there's a love interest, it's immediate. It hits hard, and it's crazy. The char- the characters just go; they lose their mind. Wait, so you think that's he, Shakespeare thinks that's how people are, or is he just working with I, the limitations of playwriting? Because you can't, like, it's you know, in a, on a stage. I mean, I guess you could say six months later they got to know each other and they fell in love truly. But that's like. But he does go out of his way to say that it's madness and that it comes on them. It comes on her like the plague. That's not exactly the best (laughs) image. Oh, I've caught the plague and now I'm going to die of love. I I actually don't disagree with Tim at at all. Just because I say that he's turning the form on its head doesn't necessarily imply a condemnation of that. That's why I said, let's see where he goes with this. Let's see what he he does. because I think he's a little more complicated than that. But there's a lot of things we could get into actually that support Tim's idea. One is that most of the comedies have a set up a real world versus some kind of fantasy world. Um, and so they go into the fantasy world, they learn what needs to be learned, and then they go back into the real world. Twelfth Night is an exception to that in which they never get out of the fantasy world. Illyria is like as, as you like it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. The other comedies where there's disguise, mistaken identity, cross dressing, like that happens in almost. It's the same. It's the same paradigm as a fairy tale, right? Like, so you're in the fairy tale world where the regular rules don't apply, and then we take the lessons that we've learned and we can go back into the real world. He doesn't do that in this play. I'm I'm really interested to see what we all think he's he's saying with that, right? Why doesn't why don't they come out of the fantasy world? Yeah. I mean, fairy tale worlds typically um well almost really without exception are supposed to be heaven um and so you and then that's why he makes the connection between illyria and elysium where am i am i dead am i in elysium no you're in illyria well that's he's pretty obviously making that connection there right she's in this kind of heavenly fairy tale land where the rules don't apply and so we have to try to make sense of what what he's doing with that like what is he trying to say right even with the idea of like Oh, why was I saved? You know, like the random, the chance of being saved. Like right, from, and, some, and so the, sometimes um, I will watch. I write questions in the margin, like so. I, if I see something in Act One that he's raising up, I think, okay, where is he going to go with this? So one of the questions I have asked myself is, if everyone's drowning in emotion, what is the significance <laughs> that Violet and her brother are not drowned, but are like vomited up out of the sea? What is their role going to be? Because they're like they're the opposite of drowned. So we are not drowned. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do you uh, go to phrase? Yeah. yeah, Come on, man. But they're vomited up by the sea. No, no, no. Interesting. I stole interesting. Oh, interesting. Well, the Duke says he's going to eat until he throws up and then he's going to eat some more and then they have the sea throw them up. And so, yeah, it's just, I'm telling you, metaphor king over here. That's Will. Do do you think that, oh, Will is, does he take uh, Orsino, for example, seriously as a character? I, I don't think so. What, what do you, do you think? think? I, mean, I guess I don't know really what you're asking. He's a comic character. Is that what you mean? Well, do, do you think he takes his emotion? Like, I, I know he's meant to be funny or comic. Um, but do you think that we, okay, let me ask you the question. Do you think that we are meant to take his affection for... Um, uh olivia as as true or serious or is it pure is it just pure madness okay so i'm interested to see what i'm gonna think by the time i finish the play 
But so the scholarship I read this weekend was that had a complete consensus that he is in love with the idea of being in love and that you're supposed to take him as, you know, he's just, he's just in love with the idea of being in love. Oh, and I was going to say something about the ending to prove that, but I will save it. <laughs> until well, he, does talk, he does talk about how he says, you know, like the, the effects of being in love, he, he, line eight or nine or whatever, they're not so sweet as they were before. So then the, he tells the music to stop, but then he, he talks about the spirit of love how quick and fresh art thou that receiveth as the sea. So he does talk, he does stop talking about Olivia herself and it's all about the spirit of love. So that does kind of support that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The idea of like imagination, like full of shapes is fancy that it alone is high fantastical. Like the spirit mm-hmm. of love is full of shapes and it's all about, you know, the idea of imagination and love being the spirit of love and imagination being tied together because it have how you see a thing that you love you know, your imagination can make it different. And am I, did I dream this? But isn't there a line somewhere in act one where the Duke basically says that the enjoyment of the love is that it's not in front of him. And so it's kind of like the fact that she keeps saying no is why he's in love with her. Yeah. Did I dream that? He's hard to get. (laughs) (laughs) He's in love with her because she's hard to get. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, that sounds vaguely familiar, Angelina, but I couldn't. I, I can't remember. I, re- I read a lot this weekend, so I can't remember. But I, well, I they talk, like they talk a lot about the heart, like even there at the end of scene one, right? Like, will you go hunt my Lord? And he says, what? And she, and he says the heart. And then he yes. says, Why, so I do the noblest that I have. He like yeah. completely misunderstands. And it is interesting, actually. Hmm. This, so, okay. He says, Oh, when mine eyes did see Olivia first, methought she purged the air of pestilence. So like at first he thinks it's this purity about her, right? She's like a humidifier with, with, um, <laughs> with, uh, well, there was oil, the essential oils. That, but there was the Renaissance belief that a sweet smell protected you from the plague. That's why she's purging the air of pestilence. And that's why she says later she gets struck by a plague. Like she, her she, presence is the thing that, you know, can cure disease that's how pure hmm. she is but but in turn she then uh, contracts the disease yes exactly well so if she hadn't off. been curing it then she wouldn't have picked it up <laughs> some of Orsino's um metaphors for himself i think do lend themselves to kind of a more comic interpretation so following on the heels of me thought she purged the air of pestilence that instant i turned into a heart yeah. And my desires like fell and cruel hounds ere since pursue me. It's pretty clumsy for Shakespeare. I mean, deliberately clumsy. It is. Yeah. But then again, that's, you compare that with her. Point. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yes. No, no, I agree. Shakespeare sometimes gives people bad lines and it's supposed to say something about them, not him. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes. No, to- total, totally you, agree. Sometimes I, mean, I think people, I had students who are reading it and be like, what's so great about that? And I'm like, exactly. Right, like right. No, and then he changes the he changes the meter, right? So noble characters get iambic pentameter, other lower characters get prose, like all of that. You know, he didn't yeah. just suddenly forget how to write. Can't he make didn't. this fit in the poem. Just gonna stick it in there. He didn't become McGonagall. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It's not like I'm writing this play where it would just be and dot 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 stuff <laughs> happens. <laughs> That's what Tim sorry. does when he gets stuck with the scene. Something good here. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll finish this later and then never does. Very intense climactic <laughs> moment here. Um, no, but the but 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 there is a parallel. We have to look for the parallels between the Duke and Olivia because they're two characters in excess of emotion, right? So the fact that he even jokingly says that his his feelings are now pursuing him like cruel hounds. So now he's the hunted, right, by his yeah. own emotions. That's yeah. like her saying, I just fell victim to the plague of love. Like that is not, <laughs> those are not life-giving images of what love does to you. It's like, right. it's killing you. You're afflicted with it. Yeah, they're also Which not- that's, the, that's a Renaissance idea too, that whole, like the, the pain of being in love. Mm. Yeah, they're not like um, active participants in it. Yeah, he's not saying, well, I was dead and then I saw her and now I'm alive. It's like, nope, I fell in love and I've been dead ever since. I'm slowly dying. Or, or even the a, idea of like hurt. choosing somebody and choose like the, like you're choosing to pursue. Oh, yeah. Nobody's choosing anything, right? I just got afflicted with the plague. But then, it's, you know, but some of these, gosh, some of these images are hilariously funny. Like, so you're supposed to be talking about her dead, serious grief about her dead brother, right? Like it's superstitious. I'm going to look at a man. She'll be veiled for seven years because she's so devoted to the memory of her brother, which they refer to as her eye offending brine, right? Like that's hilarious. The, the, yeah. the salt from the tears in her eyes is like the brine on this Thanksgiving turkey. It's seasoning the love. It's just so crazy. I, I, I underlined that one and laughed for a while. I love the one. But it's all um, out of proportion. And both of them are devoted to someone that's not there to an idea. So she's also devoted to the idea of her brother. And, and then, of course, in a way, the fools will just come to lump them all into one category. The foolish people. Well, I don't want to say maybe not the fools because there's an actual fool. The, uh, the motley crew. Um, they all sort of are in search of an ideal as well an idea but the idea is like what they think of themselves like they're sort of in love with themselves and sir andrew and sir toby are in love with who they could like their own like how masculine they could be like what they think of themselves right no like, they, he uses that he i'm trying yeah yeah olivia says to malvolio you are sick of self-love malvolio oh yeah yeah i didn't even catch that like they cut, like I love how uh, Andrew and Toby keep referring to themselves as knights, and like maybe they were, right, actual knights because they're sirs or whatever. But they're oh, also yeah, they're not, like they're not knightly at all, so to speak. No, they're like the the forty year old guys who used to play high school football, and like they can't stop talking about that great catch. Like that's how they are. <laughs> I love in um, I love in uh, one point three, um. Andrew says, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I'm going to leave uh, line 80. And then Toby says, pourquoi, my dear knight? And then Andrew's like, wait, what is pourquoi? Yeah. <laughs> do? Is it mean do or not? Like, are you trying to ask me, are you going to try to convince me not to go? And then he says, I would, I had bestowed that time in the tongues that I have in fencing, dancing, and bear baiting. <laughs> oh, had I but followed the arts. And then, <laughs> so, so I really wish I'd spent more time studying my languages. And then, um, then they start talking about like, uh, and then Sir Toby changes the subject. He's like, you did have an excellent head of hair back then. But it's a, it's a pun on, well, you didn't develop your tongue, but you have a nice head of hair. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then they talk about, they just, so then these puns, but they have this vision of themselves as like you said, like as being so much better and in pursuit of some some ideal but they have the essence of what that ideal should be so f turned upside down that it's all about like um i mean it's all about essentially like lowbrow escapades i'll put it that way 
yeah, right? right. They believe but that, that isn't should... fitting with the Twelfth Night theme, though. The the crazy right. yeah. festivities kind of madcap of, of it think, all. That that's but that's it's like they think that that's what makes them knights, right? It's like a knightly thing. It seems like like that they makes them honorable and more manly to be participating in that kind of stuff. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, that's how I was, as I, that's what I kept thinking that they were, they were in search of. Um, at least maybe I'm just reading into it a little bit too much, but. <clears throat> no, no, I, I, no, I, I think that that's true. I think that's true. And I totally forgot what I was going to say now, but yeah, that's, that's, that's act one. <clears throat> Tim, do you have one. Do you have any, um, any characters or um, or passages that stood out to you in this that you really liked or that you because Angelina and I got to present a couple. I feel like you know maybe we we at least maybe yes I, you were I, quiet Tim. I'm I boxed sorry. you out a little bit there. I didn't uh, didn't mean to. Oh, that's fine. I love the uh, Viola with Olivia scene where she's kind of making her play on behalf of Orsino for Olivia's hand. I just thought that was lovely. I love the the. Um, Gosh, the kind of paradox or the, I don't know what you would call it, the kind of logical puzzle that the fool puts before Olivia also. Those are my two favorite passages in this act. They're my, my two favorite episodes, I should call them. I thought they were wonderful. Do you have a character that's going to, you're going to, you're particularly interested in tracing as we are following as we go? I like the clown very much. He's not, a, I know he's not a big role, but. I think Angelina set him up well for what he's going to do in the play. And he's, he's a misfit and he's very, he's the cleverest of the bunch. And there's a, <laughs> Sir Toby for all of his uh, lowbrow humor. He's a very, very clever man. Well, I can. I remember now what I was going to say, David. Yeah. You were talking about how those characters don't know themselves, and that reminded me that almost all of Shakespeare's comedies have a strong theme of self-knowledge, and people who are in some kind of disguise—that being a metaphor for them not knowing who they are—and in through the course of the play, they finally learn who they are. They 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 acquire self-knowledge. Um, <laughs> so we can be curious. We can be looking for what what is Shakespeare going to do here? Are those characters going to change? Will they ever? achieve any kind of self-knowledge mm -hmm. well listen this is an episode for the hardcore close reads fan it's gonna be a long one uh i think this is like gonna probably end up being about an hour and a half so um anybody... so right in between your thanksgiving dinner and your tryptophan nap yeah so <laughs> so everybody who's still with us thank you for listening um I, I presumably uh, the rest of the the episodes on 12th night will not be this long because we'll dive right into the play itself and you know some of those things and talk less uh big ideas of, of shakespeare and things like that tim angelina thanks uh, for another episode thank, thank you david uh thanks everyone as always who has been um uh you know supporting the show through patreon um this thanksgiving week we are certainly grateful for you um helping cover some of the expenses for doing this show um it's been a it's been great to see the the community grow and and so we're we're grateful for all of you who are listening. I am I'm just going to say it. I am grateful to both of you for this show. It's been it's been really fun to do this. Um, you have been very consistent and um, kept up, and not a lot of people who I do shows with are as consistent and committed as you guys. I don't mean that as an insult to anyone else, but you just like go over and above. So thank you um, for 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 your uh, for your role in making this show happen.
Absolutely. Oh, and thank you. Thank you for your loving patience with some of the cast members on this show. <laughs> that was not an insult to Tim, by the way. That was all me. <laughs> no, I love I love the show. I love doing it. Um, and uh, and I and I mean it. I I am grateful to everyone who listens and to to both of you who who are participate and again definitely to all the people who stuck with us on this episode this is a long one so hopefully it was worth it uh i hope everyone had a great holiday um and, a, and pray that you have uh, pray and hope that you have a wonderful time together with family um for those of you that have family around and if there's no family around i hope that it's been a good time with with friends um uh you know we uh we really do feel like the close reads community is a community and uh um, and i and i if you need uh someone to to hang out with the, during the holiday times let one of let you know let us know where you know we'll do our best to try to hook you up with someone in the area or something like that i know there's a lot of people in a lot of different areas that are on the group so we want to make sure that people have um someone in the uh, families or friends to, to hang out with during the holidays so um i guess with that let's let's say farewell uh, happy thanksgiving to everybody for angelina sanford for tim mcintosh and for all of us here at cersei i'm david kern thanks so much for listening to close reads on the cersei podcast network we'll talk to you next week Thank you.